Welcome to Liberty Unlocked. I'm Don Watkins. All right, I am super excited for this episode. This is one of my favorite conversations ever because it's one of my favorite people to talk to ever. My friend Daniel Richards, who's an expert in digital media and social media and has really helped a lot of people and organizations build huge followings. And uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about is really kind of, I I focused on um, advice that he would offer free market pro-liberty organizations. But as you'll see, it's really applicable to all of us. Um, A lot about the kind of methods that we can go through in order to learn more about our audience and how to reach and expand our audience. And then just a bunch of broader lessons about, um, you know, Daniel's background is in rhetoric. And so just a lot of discussion about how to talk about ideas in effective ways. So I'm really excited. I don't want to keep you from the interview any longer, but a few final thoughts. Um, Remember that the best way to stay in touch and make sure you don't miss anything that we're working on is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. You can also support the show by going to libertyunlock.com where every dollar is used to improve the show and expand its reach. And with that, we can get on to the conversation with Daniel Richards. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. So we we met, uh, I don't remember what year it was, maybe you do, at the Ayn Rand Institute. But I don't even know in detail sort of your story of what led you to working there. Now, you did digital media and social media for us back then, and that's sort of been the trajectory of your career but how did you get interested in ideas in the first place? And then I'm curious as to how you, cause you were, you know, one of the early people in the social media universe before every college kid, you know, I'm a digital media expert. So, but where did the whole journey start for you? It was back when we used to call it new media. <laughs> uh, but yes. So I started getting interested in ideas around the age of three or so I'd say. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I started reading. I always wanted to be an adult is actually how that story starts. I totally relate to that. Totally. I identified from a very young age that being a kid was not great, actually, (laughs) and that adults got to do everything that was wonderful. And so I wanted to be an adult. So when I could read, I started reading adult things like newspapers back when those were printed. But I, I always wanted to be an adult. So I had an early interest in ideas and I was a conservative only because I think those were the columns I was reading at the time. <laughs> what paper uh, the, were you getting? The Wall Street Journal. Okay. Which was pretty good. Not a bad education for a young person, honestly. And I took that interest in ideas through school. I was always arguing with teachers. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know the principles behind things. I didn't want to just be told information. I wanted to be able to get to the root cause of everything. I was that kind of kid. And so come high school-ish, I started to have a much deeper dive into, I guess, first principles types things, which uh, came through religion for me. I started questioning being religious. I would go to church every week, but I didn't really get it. It didn't, everyone kept talking about how they, they, you know, the spirit of Jesus flowed through them and they they could feel it. And I I just kept looking around saying, "I, I don't feel it. And actually, it was my pastor who set me down the course of being interested in Ayn Rand. And he gave this fascinating sermon one day about how God doesn't actually want your blind obedience. God wants you to understand him through reason. And if you can't understand him through reason, then you shouldn't be a believer. 
And I don't know why he gave that sermon. typical Sunday sermon. <laughs> I have no idea to this day. I never asked him about it. I just remember it vividly. And that was the day I thought, well, I, I actually don't uh, understand him through reason. So I'm, I'm going to move on with that part of my life, although I still enjoyed the community of church for a long time. But I started then uh, getting into rhetoric as a means of understanding the world, partially because once I thought there's no God, I thought there was no truth. And so I thought everything was only what you could convince other people of. And so I became obsessed with persuasion and this concept of that anyone who can master changing someone's mind actually masters the world. Uh, who who would you have been reading in those days? I mean, ro- rhetoric is obviously a throwback word. It's a lovely word. It's it's I, I, I like it actually in many ways better than persuasion. <laughs> because uh, it's more focused on what you're doing rather than the pretense that you can do something to someone else. Yep. It's much yep. more about you're offering something that then they can take and run with. Uh, and it's just, it's just a more beautiful word, but I'm curious as to, you know, what was your entry point there? Some of the things that you were imbibing that were influential. I was lucky enough to have teachers who would assign classical essays in addition to reading the, um, the nonsense modernist literature in high school. So we would read The Perks of Being a Wallflower, but then we would also read an essay by Plato. And uh, via Socrates, Plato would talk about things like the sophists of the time being engaged in empty rhetoric and Mm -hmm. going around and just persuading everyone for a buck and how horrible that was. Um, And that led me to Aristotle and Aristotle's rhetoric, although it is a tough one to make your way through, was life-changing for me in the sense that he was the first person, I think, who laid out the principles of rhetoric. And since I was such a principle-focused person, it made made much more sense to me as an approach. And then from there, I just dove into all the classical uh, rhetorical treaties, Cicero, Quintilian, and, uh, and the rest. So, one, of my, one of the best gifts I ever got, uh, this was many years ago, when Alex Epstein and I both worked at the Ayn Rand Institute and I wanted to, uh, I was horrible at speaking and wanted to get good. And he got me Cicero's book on rhetoric, which I I think is not a real book, but a collection of different pieces that uh, he either wrote or, or gave in his time. And that, that was very treasured. What a master. Absolutely. Cicero is and Alex, but, but Cicero. (laughs) Um, So, I come to college, I don't really know what I believe per se philosophically because I'd, I had been wrestling with this idea of there not being truth. I was exposed to a lot of leftist philosophy, John Rawls, and that didn't make any sense to me. And I was in a contemporary philosophy class, like you do, and we got to the very last lesson, and it was an essay, I forget the philosopher, and it's probably better that I've forgotten the philosopher, but his essential thesis was, since there's no meaning to life, you should kill yourself. <laughs> and that's, we had that's, a... that's what we call in philosophy, biting the bullet, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, my, my professor was awesome. He was open to questions and, and open to uh, pushback, and he encouraged critical thinking and on, on the last sort of day of discussion of this class and this essay, I asked him, Did, do any modern philosophers care to live? Or, or some, I don't remember, that's not verbatim, but it was something sure. to that effect. 
And he sort of laughed and he said, well, this is, this is how he phrased it. Some people get uh, something out of Ayn Rand. That's what there he said. There you go. And that was during the days of libraries. And I walked to the library and it took me a while in the literal card catalog to find Ayn Rand because it wasn't a typical spelling of Anne, as I found out, nor was it Anne, in fact. But I checked out Atlas Shrugged, went home for that summer. That was the summer after my sophomore year. Read Atlas Shrugged twice that summer and did not have the epiphany that many people have where they think, oh, this is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is everything I believed. My thought was, this is so clear and so, I'll use the word simple, but maybe it's just clear is the right word, that it must be wrong. Because I had this exposure to philosophy where everything was overly complex and you had to sit down and with a dictionary to decipher every single word and what they were trying to say, and it was almost a mystery as to what they were actually getting at. And her writing was so amazingly precise and clear that I thought, nope, this, this can't be it. It makes too much sense. It's too reasonable. It just can't be right. And so... As a philosophy major and then later an English major, I undertook a bunch of independent studies with philosophy professors, basically studying objectivism over the course of the next two years and then into graduate school, with the intention initially of being the one who proved Ayn Rand wrong. And quite the opposite happened. (laughs) Come graduate school at Clemson University, that was the first year that I said that I, I am an objectivist. And decided that I wasn't going to, I was going to stop trying to prove Ayn Rand wrong. And I was going to, I wanted to start promoting the ideas uh, of objectivism. So I like though, I like that you had a period where, because I I was more on the other side of like rush to agreement. Um, Granted, I discovered it when I was 15. So I was going to rush to something dumb, but, uh, (laughs) and what happened was once I got into my twenties, I had to go back and really do the hard work of, do I really understand this? Like, what are the best objections? How can I push against this in order to really have a firsthand understanding? And I, I, I think it's, you, you save yourself a lot of headaches by in effect, starting from the premise of like, let's ferret out all the mistakes because I have nothing invested in this being right. If anything, I have something invested in overturning it. Um, So that once you reach a stage of being convinced, you've genuinely been convinced. It was definitely a different approach. And I didn't have a community of other objectivists in undergrad. It was just me and it was just reading things. And it was just professors who, for the most part, were were fine that I was questioning this material, but were even a little bit annoyed that I was reading it in the first place, Mm. which was fine with me because that made me happy because I was an antagonist to my professors all throughout college. But then in graduate school, I got to meet Dr. Brad Thompson and uh, Dr. Eric Daniels and sit through and read Atlas Shrugged chapter by chapter and really dive into it. And that's sort of what solidified my, my, not only my understanding of it, I believe, but also my wanting to advocate for objectivism. But the slow-moving train of my life was still pushing me toward this much more academic career in rhetoric. I thought I was going to be a rhetoric professor. After graduate school, I got accepted into a PhD program at Rensselaer Polytechnic in rhetoric. 
and got there, and in six months, that train came to a halt, and I thought, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I can't debate one more time the rhetoric of nothingness, or if there's meaning to syntax, or if grammar is all there is in the universe. I, I couldn't do it anymore. And totally, I don't know, serendipitously, that is when the Ayn Rand Center, the version in Washington, D.C., put out a job post for their first ever uh, new media director. I forget exactly, coordinator or something like that. And I decided I was going to give everything I had to get this position and leave graduate school. And so I trained down from uh, upstate New York to, to meet some folks at the Ayn Rand Center. And that was 2009, October 2009. So we must have met probably sometime later that year when I first came out to California. And there's yeah. the year for you. So, so then let's back up to, you know, 2009, like what was even going on in the social media at that place? I mean, Facebook now had a real foothold. I think MySpace was either dead or it was, it was on its right. last legs by that point. The, Twitter, I think, had just launched but nobody knew about it roughly in that period. 2007. Like, but yeah, it was, it was just starting to get attention. Yeah. I don't think yeah. Ashton Kutcher had hit a million yet, which was right. like a big breakthrough point. Um, so like, how did you get interested in that world? I mean, obviously college would have been where this was really a live issue, but paint that picture a little bit. So I was in undergrad still with the interest in rhetoric. I was also the newspaper editor and Facebook had just come to our campus. This must have been 2006-ish, 2005-ish. That time, they didn't have pages back then. It was just your profile and your wall, and you could write on people's walls. But I immediately saw that our newspaper should have a profile. So I set up a what was then a, very much against their terms of service, a profile for this, this non-living person, and started talking to people as this newspaper instead of as me. And that got a lot of attention on campus and a lot of interest in the newspaper. And it was immediately apparent to me that it was, this was going to totally change how, I, at that time, I didn't say brands, I would have said something like companies or businesses mm -hmm. talk to their customers. Uh, that was shut down by Facebook because it was absolutely violating their terms of service. But eventually they opened up this thing for pages and that became a big deal. But in graduate school then, when things were taking off in the social media world and I was still studying rhetoric and mass communication, it just became abundantly clear to me that we were not going back to some other model and that I needed to figure out how the principles of rhetoric pertain in this mass media environment where we can, where there's no more gatekeepers, basically. And I mean, I just want to stress for people because this can seem like, duh, now but that is not how people were thinking like i, I you know I, i'm a little bit older than you and like i remember that period and particularly if you're talking about organizations brands the idea was that like this is this is kind of what the kids do and you know hey i'm going to this party and later with twitter hey look at my plate of food but n almost nobody at that time thought this is going to be the mode of communicating serious ideas or business ideas like th that was really something that was um, going against the grain at that point. Did you have a sense of that or was it just you, you just thought this was obviously going to be the way that people were going to interact? 
I think I only had a sense of it once I started working, once mm-hmm. I started doing professional digital and saw that there was pushback on that that concept. As much as I love and adore Yaron Brook and everyone should check out Yaron's show, I remember famously a conversation where he said, you can't tweet philosophy. And I thought, hmm, okay, but you kind of can. <laughs> you can't treat a tweet a treatise in the same traditional way, but every mode of communication we get changes how we communicate. It doesn't mean that we just can't communicate philosophy anymore through these media. It means we have to figure out how to communicate philosophy through these media. But so 2009 specifically uh, was sort of a breakout year for YouTube. And 2010 then was an even bigger breakout year for YouTube. And it, and it became clear that the direction things were going was user-created, user-generated content, peer-to-peer stuff that wasn't just text and tweets. It was more of a multimedia-rich uh, environment. And so that's sort of the direction I wanted to take things for the Ayn Rand Institute. And that was the year that we did the Atlas Shrugged Video Contest asking people to create their own three to five minute videos, either explaining a concept for Atlas Shrugged or explaining why Atlas Shrugged was important to them. And at that time, that was uh, not radical, but it was it was certainly uncommon, uh, an approach to things. I think we received something about 120 entries from people that in totality gained millions-ish of views, and including a segment on the John Stossel's brand new show at that point on Fox Business, where he announced well, the winners. So that was but, a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that. And that was, I mean, it was really successful for anything we had done. But I think what 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 happened, and I and this, <laughs> businesses continue to do this, uh, it didn't have sort of like standard measurable results. Like we got this views, like this, you know, these views, what next? And so we didn't double down on it and didn't see the value of just build that engagement, keep people excited. And we don't know exactly how it's going to pay off, but we know like we're in the mix. And so it was one of those things where I feel like we got on the ground relatively early and we're doing things that were working and it never got elevated to a priority. And I don't say this as a judgment because I held the same view of like, yeah. that's nice, but what does it amount to? Like exactly. we, whose minds are we changing? How is this influencing the debate? And now I, you know, a, uh, a decade later, now I've come back to the view of like, that really is a key game to be playing of be where people are already giving their attention, build that kind of engagement excitement. And look, you get things like Stossel, you get people pouring their creativity into it. And if they're getting a payoff of, hey, I did this Ayn Rand thing. And now I, who's just like some kid, you know, in their college dorm room, I got 50,000 views. Well, maybe that's something you can nurture in your direction. And so I think it was, it was a real illustration of that your thesis was correct and a real illustration of um, most people didn't see it. And I think even now, continue not to really fully buy in at least those of us who are you know uh, i'm not quite 40 but like that era um that that there is this that that's an important form of engagement and that you have to think about it very differently than you would like oh i got twenty thousand book sales or something yeah it's it's i don't harbor any ill will from that era in the sense that very few people saw it and i i 
had this thesis, but I also wasn't, I wasn't going <laughs> to bet everything on this thesis because it was also so brand new. And while I thought it was successful, I, it was hard to determine what success looked like. You're exactly right. What does a view mean on YouTube? I mean, back then you didn't even have the, the crazy in-depth metrics that they have now. We didn't know how long someone watched something. So a view could have been a blip. How do we know that they're not gaming the system? Um, for vanity's sake. But yeah, I, I think we're we're at a point now where we're it's funny where the digital world has we've gone as broad as we can, or maybe not, but we've gone fairly broad in terms of reach and digital. And now we're moving back to narrow. Now we're moving back to niche. Now we're getting back to finding sub-communities and owning your audience and using digital as a way to provide value, but then to bring someone back somewhere that you, uh, as a content creator, own a website or an email list or, or something like that. And that was always there. But w certainly when we first started this whole digital adventure, it was, oh, we're gonna leave that behind, because now we can infinitely reach millions of people with a Facebook page. And then suddenly Facebook and others decided they were going to change the game a little bit. So not only pay to play, but now can't even pay to play if you you have certain viewpoints or if you're controversial or. Yeah, we, we had a conversation about this a month or so ago that I, I ended up writing something about like just this just this problem of that, particularly if you're in the business of selling controversial ideas you're in a very risky, precarious spot if you're depending on any social media platform. And, you know, so you want to think about ways to own your audience. You want to think about diversification. I think ultimately, you know, some people are out there trying to create free speech platforms. But part of what I argued there is if all you're doing is duplicating what already exists, but like promising that you're not going to screw people over, you're not going to be able to attract right. enough people because there's so much that goes into those working above all network effects, which is you don't have a lot of people. They already have a lot of people. So why am I going to go to your platform? What just in case they'll cancel me over there? It's right. not, it's, it's not a uh, really compelling ask. So, I mean, if, what is your take on the kind of the state of the Liberty movement? And we can, we can take away, you work at an organization in, in the Liberty movement now I work with clients there. So abstracting away from ones that we're personally invested with, um, what do you think of the state of what Liberty organizations are doing in the, the, the new media, the digital media space, social media space today? And, you know, where, where would you like to see us go? Or what are some of the challenges that we face in getting to a better place? So I will say that from when I started in the Liberty space, Generally speaking, liberty organizations have gotten much better at communicating ideas. They've gotten, they've adopted many more technologies, but a lot of it has been fairly recent, I would say, at least in terms of uh, adoption and full utilization. And so, uh, to be to be specific, video, for instance, video is um, the big one I've seen progress on. Is uh, so much progress has been made. And very quickly, because I think, again, the Liberty Movement was probably five, six-ish years behind in doing that. Um, but generally speaking, I think 
liberty organizations are much more willing to experiment now, at least some of the better ones, if we're judging by who I think is doing it well, as opposed to what typically happens, especially in a nonprofit space, is even if an organization does something that's out of the box or interesting or, dare I say, effective, then they just have to keep doing that thing because now fundraising is dependent on it and mm-hmm. you don't want to change doing that thing because you might lose money. I think as the digital space just becomes more ingrained in our culture, donors are becoming more savvy about that now and are expecting a little more experimentation. I'm not going to say it's it's there yet or it's where it needs to be, but it, it certainly it's getting better. So... Um, yeah, where where would I like us? Where would I like the liberty movement to be? Well, <laughs> I'd like us to be more experimental. I'd like us to try uh, to not be as dependent on legacy platforms, for instance. And in fact, to as you were talking about earlier, diversify. I like to think about it as platform agnosticism. How do you create a content strategy, for instance, that isn't dependent on any particular platform that mm-hmm. only uses them to the extent that they create value for their users? Then that you take advantage of that, but that ultimately everything you're producing, you own, you have a home for, you are trying to drive people to, etc. I think people are. I sorry, I, I agree with that. I do though alarm bells going off in my brain because one of the biggest mistakes particularly brands or organizations make is that their platform agnosticism consists of going onto every platform and saying go look at our stuff 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 that's and, a very and, good point and yes. that does not work like that is uh it, like if if all you're doing is an alarm bell to say hey go do this other thing rather than creating content that's contextually valuable on that platform I don't think you achieve anything good. That is an excellent clarification. And and what I mean by platform agnosticism is uh, don't come out and say, our strategy for the next three years is going to be to build, to build as big a Twitter following as we can. Just focus on Twitter, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That's not great, especially Twitter decides, hey, you're too controversial for us now. And we're going to pull your uh, your reach. No good. Yeah, certainly what I mean is don't be reliant on any one platform. But it, insofar as you are going to be on a platform, you better take advantage of that platform's unique value proposition and create as best you can. Or not create. Modify your content. Create value in that platform as its users expect to receive value. But don't be reliant on it yeah i i mean i this is one big lesson i want to underscore for everybody this isn't just for organizations but and maybe i've told this story before but one of the most awful experiences i ever had was uh when my book equals is unfair came out i got to do a reddit ask me anything but i had literally never spent any time on reddit so i knew nothing about like what are people looking for there? What are their expectations? And so, well, I have a book coming out. So, you know, people would ask a question be like, oh, we answer this in the book. And like, you know, and within, you know, five or 10 questions, the outpouring of disgust at this guy promoting his book, which is like a big sin. uh, And if you spend any time and read it, you would know like, no, 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 you're here to answer our questions. And that's fine. You can let us know you have a book, but you can't, you cannot <laughs> right. be promoting. Um, 
it was like within 20 minutes just a bombardment of uh insults and anger and i had committed <laughs> to doing like two hours of this and i think i just quit after an hour but that was a big lesson for me of like really take seriously you're entering you know if not somebody's home you're entering a little clubhouse what are the club rules what are the club expectations and you can bend those if you can think of a creative way to use it that's even more valuable but do that at your peril because um people are in a certain headspace when they're using it and if you're just like what you don't want to do is you go, you get to the club and you have a whole bunch of like you know rappers saying hey man buy my cd buy my like that's you don't don't be that guy yeah it's certainly a couple things there that's a great story to illustrate the point i think that too too many times there are, there are two types of failures one is spreading oneself too thin either it's individual organ or an organization without the resources who say well we have to be on facebook twitter instagram linkedin youtube uh parlay now etc 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 uh no you don't how about you create meaningful, valuable content and then choose one, for instance, where you think you can learn to be a value on that platform, learn to speak that platform's language, be involved with a particular audience. And first of all, it, are the people you want to reach on that platform, for instance? Right. Um, and just choose one, get good at it, and then scale. You don't have to do everything simultaneously, especially you could, you could be doing damage if you're doing that and you're not doing it well. And the second thing is, in thinking about, again, going back to uh, my undergraduate years with putting the newspaper on Facebook, I immediately thought of it like, well, what if you were meeting our newspaper at a party? You, you, you pick rappers, but... I picked a newspaper because I'm nerdy. What if you were (laughs) meeting this newspaper at a party and all we kept saying is, have you seen this latest article? Click here to read whatever. Have you seen my latest work? Have you seen my latest work? You'd be the most, you'd be the worst person at the party. (laughs) Right. People would hate you. So if your brand and whether that's you as a person or whether it's your organization, uh, we're at a party on social media. Would people be annoyed by you? Would they find you fascinating? Would they want to talk to you? Would they want to continue conversation later, go out on a date or whatever it is, however you want to think about the weird metaphor as it goes down the line? But uh, be interesting. You, uh, you point this out a lot, which is simply sometimes the best you can do is be engaging and make people want to to listen to what you have to say. Um, so, yeah, those two things. Don't overextend yourself and also uh, don't be that annoying guy at the party. What about the whole issue of audience building? So one is, I think, like a fundamental is know the platforms that you're engaging with and provide value on those platforms. Um, Do you have any thoughts on sort of opportunities in that area? Because as we've talked about uh, separately, like the, the number one complaint, like organizations will pour a lot of man hours, a lot of money, and even these good, these well done videos often that you see them doing, at least well done from a technical point of view, maybe there, you know, there's certain problems with, is this even the right topic to be doing a video on? Um, right. And, you know, they'll spend 10 grand, 20 grand, and get 100 views, 1,000 views. And there's always the question of, you know, if those are the right 1,000 views, maybe that's amazing, right? Like if, you know, if what you're looking for is the, you know, your next crop of interns, maybe you just need the right 1,000 people. But 
what what are you what's your take on uh audience building and sort of the the things that we could be doing and the things that we often do that sabotage us certainly so one mantra that i have when talking to people about audience building is is uh smaller go smaller and partially what i mean by that is we're only convincing individuals we're not convincing groups and so who are the individuals you want to speak to? And sometimes you can literally identify that. So uh, sometimes it's law students, for instance. Now that is a group, but it's a fairly small group. There's at any time about 130,000 law students in law school. And when you start thinking about, well, where do these individuals, where are they located? At least in pre-COVID times, they're located at law schools, which have a physical location. They typically have .edu email addresses. They're interested, they're searching for things in law and public policy. And partially what I mean by go smaller is also go where these people are having conversations already. So one of the things that uh, is interesting about Twitter is you have hashtags and you have all of these various conversations going on that can be highly niche, but highly relevant to your audiences. If we're continuing down the law student uh, example here, no one would ever think, but something like hashtag appellate Twitter is where meaningful, important conversation is going on about some of the nerdiest but most important legal topics. And if you can become a member of this community and be able to speak with them and not just advertise to them, then you're going to have a small but fairly dedicated audience, for instance, to help spread the word about your content and tell other people who aren't using that, but who are in their sphere about you and about your content, et cetera. So that's, I think, how you start to do it from a sort of grassroots, no budget type level is really find the places where the smallest group of people you can identify are having meaningful conversations. And that can take a lot of work. It can take years. Another example of this, uh, back from when I worked on this documentary, Frack Nation, uh, which was a uh, documentary sort of a countering an anti-hydraulic fracturing or natural gas drilling method. Um, it was, we did a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for it. And one of the things was we were thinking about, well, who has money who would be interested in a pro drilling or natural gas exploration documentary? Oh boy. Obviously oil and gas CEOs, but there's a really, as much as we would like to take their money and as much as we thought it was perfectly moral to take their money, there's a certain element of persuasion there that's not great, which is, yeah. oh, now this it's is not funded the ideal by... optics, right. Right. So we thought, well, okay, not that. But when we started doing digging and who was having these meaningful conversations online, we started coming back to the fact that many people who were advocating for this were actually royalty owners who had land... Mm -hmm that had oil and gas wells on them. And usually they're not making enormous amounts of money, but they're making enough money, for instance, to keep their farm going. Right. And that, that wouldn't be profitable otherwise. And I even and, think some of them appeared in the documentary, if I recall. Like, those were some of the most powerful things. I think there was one guy talking about, like, putting his kids through college or something like that. But um, Absolutely. Yeah. So not only did we tap into a source of funds and started reaching out to landowners associations across the country, which even in 2011, 12 were not on social media 
And in fact, uh, right. when we asked for a list of emails from one of them, they sent us a literal photocopied list of emails um, <laughs> in the mail that we had to use. But that was an, not only a source for funding the film, which happened then very quickly once we tapped into this community, but also a source for content and interviews and talking with people who were giving us arguments we couldn't have thought of. So that was, again, smallest possible community of people who are actually interested. Uh, bootstrap, no budget, etc. But the other side of this is for those who are going to spend money on content creation, especially you were talking about thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to make a video, it is a reality of the situation that you must advertise. Uh, or at least in my mind, why the if I build it, they will come method is going to lose you money more than it's going to make you money or make you or give or provide value in the sense that there is so much competition now for eyeballs. And this is something that is not controversial except at nonprofits or except at liberty organizations that I've talked to, because it turns out when you make a $250 million Avengers movie, you spend another $200 million advertising that Avengers movie. Right. Well, which that's a really great example because why, why do that? You know, everybody's going to talk about it. It's going to get a ton of free press. So the fact that they, that they do that for something like that, which is just automatically in the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, that illustrates to me the scale of the problem of the competition for eyeballs. Yes, absolutely. And they do it because of that competition, because there are other, because there's Justice League and because there's Batman and because there's whatever who are also wanting these people's attention. And I forget the exact statistic, but sometimes it takes upwards of 100, 200 uh, times for something to be visible to someone before it will stick in their brain or before they will even consider uh, buying the ticket or seeing the reading the book or whatever it is. Um, now, look, liberty organizations typically aren't that flush with cash. So I'm not right. saying if you spend $20,000 on a video, you need to spend $20,000 advertising it, although it would, it would probably net you much better results. But if you're going to spend $20,000 on it, think about spending at least a couple hundred, $500, $1,000. Typically, we, uh, the organization I work for tries to do at least a 20% advertising budget of whatever the production is and sometimes 25 or 30 percent depending on what we think will be the impact the impactful nature of the content but in advertising that is what gets you a ton of information about audiences and partially the value i think of advertising is that you learn so much about who is watching your content who who is who is consuming it to the end who's tuning out at the beginning are you reaching more men than women are there people with who are searching for certain things uh, that are finding your content? And the very simple idea, uh, maybe many of your people in your audience have heard about it, maybe not, but of A-B testing, of creating multiple ads for the same content and targeting the same audience and seeing which ones play out well. We'll set up five or six ads for a video with the organization I work for, and in the first couple days, we can easily see which ad is really hitting home and which is not. And then, yeah, we've lost $100 out of the $1,500 advertising budget, but now we have $1,400 to put into an incredibly effective ad. Well, and it's worth highlighting, how often are you surprised by which one works? Uh, a lot, actually. I mean, we, we have, even with the amount we've done, 
and thinking that we understand our audiences, it can still be incredibly surprising what is effective for a particular piece of content, what people are particularly interested in about that content, what aesthetic grabs them about that content. The amount of times we make a documentary and we have these scenes where we think like, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful moving scene in the documentary. And then some other scene that we spent 10 minutes on in production is the one where people go, wow, that was so cool. And then mm -hmm. they don't even talk about the really great scene that we thought was impactful and interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true across content. Uh, and in fact, the best people I know are the ones who keep a very sharp antenna out for what people are responding to. I mean, people, including myself, one of the things that we recognized was so innovative in the content space about what Alex Epstein was doing was focusing on, I'm going to give you a framework for thinking about the issue before I give you the facts that fill in that framework. Yeah. And for people who don't know what I'm talking about, read the moral case for fossil fuels or just look up some of the videos he's done. But a lot of that came, like there was some of that framework in the original book, but it was only once he started talking to CEOs and seeing that they were getting excited about the framework and not about, you know, the stuff that he thought was really kind of going to catch on and be, be interesting to people that he doubled down and that became more and more emphasized until in the new version uh, that he's working on of the book that is front and center the whole time. And so, and I've had a similar experience myself is that when you actually listen to the market feedback and one of the great things about advertising and more generally just doing social media with all the metrics that we have um, is that you'll get more of those discoveries if you look for them. And I mean, AB testing is great because uh, precisely this reason if you give yourself the possibility of discovering things that people get excited about, at least at a much rapid, more rapid rate than it's just, here's a new video, here's a new video, this one worked, this one didn't. And maybe it was just, I had a crappy way to like, you know, catch people's attention. Like it was a bad right. headline or a bad description or the, the screenshot was garbage. Like you, you don't know. And so looking for ways to multiply your chances of getting a hit and then learning from that, like that will escalate your learning so fast. And if, if you're un, uh, unfamiliar with this concept, just open Netflix at any given time, close it, wait a couple of days, open it again, and a lot of the descriptions and the pictures will be different of the characters in a show. Um, I can think about House of Cards, for instance, uh, if anyone watched that show, pre-scandal era <laughs> with, Nick Sp uh, with uh, Kevin Spacey, right. um, they would rotate who was featured based on who they thought someone's favorite character was, for instance, to see if they could get them to click on it, to open it up and watch more. And then if you start doing that, you'll see patterns about the types of people that uh, show up on your Netflix queue. It's an interesting experiment only because Netflix does it so blatantly and so often that you can actually game it a little bit if you want to try and see how you can make things appear. It's, it's an interesting little back, backwards engineering of A-B testing. Yeah, and I, I, I actually think it's a really good thing. I, I think what often happens is like liberty organizations will watch other liberty organizations. And so you have a whole bunch of people who are not at the top of the learning curve. Uh, it's a step above if you start looking at like 
left-wing organizations who are, tend to sure. be much better at this. It's an even bigger step above if you can also spread out and look at completely different industries who are like the leaders in these different fields like entertainment and see how are they trying to attract an audience? Because I mean, entertainment is so interesting in that they have to attract purely by being interesting. Like yes. they're, they're almost never have practical value to offer in terms of like, this will help you lose weight. This will help you get a girlfriend. Usually what they put out causes us to gain weight and not find a girlfriend because we're stuck in front of the TV or the video <laughs> game. And so there's, the, there's this intense, uh, um, excelling at being interesting and figuring out what your audience or potential audience finds interesting that I think is just a treasure trove um, if you pay attention. I think that's great. And just setting a standing order in your mind to think about when I click on something, when I choose to engage in a piece of content, what was it about that that made me click on it? And I don't just mean from a, a liberty organization that you like. I mean from Netflix, Hulu, Apple, uh, Amazon, why this product over another product? What made you click on it and do a tiny bit of introspection and see if you can come up with, oh, well, it was the picture was different from others or the, the copy was really interesting compared to other products that I looked for, something like that. So think about it. Be, be engaged in your consumption of media and that will help. Yeah, I don't do that enough. Like, usually I do it in retrospect. Like, somebody that uh, I respect will point out a flaw in what I'm doing, and I'll realize, oh, yeah, I, when I pro, when I'm consuming information that, like, I, that would have turned me off, or that was a missed opportunity. Um, but I, I think that's super great advice. One question I, I wanted to ask you more about, you mentioned the importance of follow, like finding where the conversations that you want to engage in are already taking place. And you mentioned that, that can be challenging. What are some of the things people can do? Because I mean, I've, I'm, I've worked and am working with clients who are trying to solve exactly this problem, and they don't even know where to start trying to find those conversations, particularly now, because you know it used to be there, you know, there'd be a message board. And that was like the big thing eight right. years ago, 10 years ago. And, you know, then it was like Facebook groups. And, but now it seems kind of very, uh, it's a jungle out there. It's, it, it, it's very hard to find these things. And I'm curious as to any thoughts you have on where do you start? So this is again, partially the advice of go smaller with your audience and for the purposes of research, smaller to me means individuals. Who are individuals who are representative of the people you want to reach? In terms of law students, who are specific law students who seem like the type of law students we would want to talk to with our videos or with our content? And then you can either, through the use of social media, engage with these people, follow them, see where the conversations they're having, click on strange hashtags that might be... Uh, a little bit scary sometimes because you don't understand what they mean. Try to learn their language or even better, offer them some value to literally talk to them. Uh, we used to call, I guess we used to call this focus grouping, but I'm just talking about having conversations about what would be valuable to them. Where are they having these conversations? Who are they having them with? Um, what are they missing out on, in, and specifically in, with law students, things like what are you missing out on in your classroom experience or in your school experience? Or um, 
if if there was something we could provide on campus that would help you? How could we do that, et cetera? And start to talk to as many people in your preferred audience as possible. And that can only happen when you go small. If you just want to do things like, I want to reach as many people as possible, oh, uh, it's going to be difficult. And also, you're not going to know how to do that because you're not going to know how to provide value for those people. So we have about 10 minutes left. So I want to take this in a completely different direction. All right. Which is so w- one of the most fun periods of my life was there was a, when, when we worked together, there was a group of us who just had lunch. And I, I can't remember like laughing that hard <laughs> in my adult life. Um, and I wish I could recreate the turtle joke. Uh, but, um, the, the conventional wisdom, which I think is true is that like one of the things that turns off a lot of people to objectivism is that most of the objectivists they meet who are granted, not like, you know, the top people, um, who understand it at the greatest depth and apply it to their life in the best way, but like are weird, mean, like, a turnoff um as somebody who i think has seen both sides of it you've seen the best and the worst and thankfully are part of the best uh what's your take on you know why that is and what you would like to see change just about the culture of the movement so that we can really encourage that kind of like uh encourage the best and and kind of discourage the worst and I don't mean discourage the worst people, push them away, but bring out the best in them and, you know, attract the best in them. Good question. So I, I and those lunches were fantastic. Uh, also one of the best times of my adult life in terms of camaraderie and humor and uh, back and forth um, in this very, uh, this fellowship that that is rare to have. So those were great. If any of you out there can have those lunches with your your friends more often than not, you should take advantage because they're too fleeting. Um, so I, I would say that part of it is objectivism. And, and I started to do this after graduate school. It, you heard the change in my story about going from wanting to uh, dissect it to wanting to promote it. Once you do get it to some level, objectivism that is, there is this I don't want to call it an instinct or a nature, but it makes the, the philosophy calls you almost to want to go out and tell people about it. Oh my goodness, I found this. My life is now profoundly better because I found it. Have you read this? Have you taught? But part of it is I don't think many people are ready at that point to do that. And that goes a little bit back to the conversation about rhetoric that we were having. So Aristotle all good conversations start with an Aristotle <laughs> reference, uh, dissects the types of rhetoric that we engage in in three very basic ways. He says we appeal to logic, we appeal to emotion, and we appeal to our own character. And he doesn't mean that uh, these things are really all that separate. They're usually a unified group of things, at least at their best. But he goes on to say specifically that character is probably the most important element of these. And specifically by character, he says he means instilling in people the sense that you that you have uh, good sense about you, that you are a good human being, and that you have goodwill toward them. And so 
I think what I would like to change about the objectivist culture, or maybe even the, the liberty movement more broadly, is instilling this sense of building your own character, your own ethos first, working on yourself first before you start offering up these values to other people. And that is, uh, I think, not only consistent with objectivism, but goes back to this very classical view of rhetoric. I think Quintilian said rhetoric, he defined rhetoric as a good man speaking well. First and foremost, a good man, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, even Cicero in uh, in De Oratore, uh, I will butcher this quote, but says something like, um, if we bestow fluency upon those who are devoid of virtue, we will have not made orators of them, but actually have put weapons in the hands of madmen. And so in my approach to persuasion, it's always about building your own house first, creating the foundation. And not just because That's how I think about philosophy and how philosophy should be to better your own life. But to me, you will only be persuasive if people see you as having good character, goodwill, a good moral foundation. It's being a genuinely good person. I mean, I think there's no question about it because, I mean, look, when you're... If if you're trying to just sell politics, I think this is still true. But if you're trying to sell this is how you should live your life. What you're saying in some regard is you should want to be like me. Like it's just inherent in giving advice on how to live. I mean, unless you're literally saying I've made a mess of my life, don't be like me. But presumably (laughs) that's not what people here are doing. And so if you're not an attractive person in that sense, like you're not a person of good character and good character, not just moral character. I think it's wider than that. Sure. A person who's a delight to be around. There's people who have perfectly good moral characters who are, you know, surly and like they're unattractive people in a sense. But I mean, that's why I raised those lunches we had together because these were all moral people who were doing something great with their lives but we're just goddamn funny and like, like an encouraging of each other and like wanting the best for everybody around them. And that, I, I think that kind that, you know, I, I always come back to this point of it's not ideas that sell ideas. It's ideas as embodied by and advocated by people that sell them. And that's why I think, you know, the, um, if you think about who has turned the most people onto Ayn Rand besides Ayn Rand, certainly one of the top contenders was Rush. And, you know, they all they had was this one dedication. Now, this is a little bit different example because it's not so much an issue of character, but it's an issue of they did something great in the world that people wanted to connect with and emulate and learn more about. And all they needed to see was, oh, here's one of my influences. And so I think you get, as much as my goal is to teach people communication and persuasion, I continue to emphasize the precondition is live a life worth emulating. Like that's that's going to be a, a starting point. And, and again, emulating isn't just living up to the virtues. It's being a great person in, in all of it. it to the extent that's possible in every respect of your life. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I mean, there's this element of friendship that's in it. Not that you have to be <clears throat> friends with every person you meet or every person you want to persuade, but elements of friendship like 
I am telling you this not because I am trying to pull something over on you or I'm trying to take advantage of you. I am telling you this for your for your sake and because it is it is good for you and I want to help you. And ultimately that is as we understand in objectivism good for me as well because the more good people out there, the more people who hold good ideas, generally that's that's better, but it's it's this idea of the the goodwill point of what Aristotle is talking about this concept of i i have your best interest in mind the difficulty of this of course and why uh, another reason why some objectivists come off antagonistically sometimes is it can that sense of goodwill can very easily cross into i know better for you than you know for you right and that's the danger of it and you know, building that sense of benevolence is not an easy thing to do, and it takes a lot of practice. But I, I think it takes a lot of what you're talking about, a lot of building yourself first, a lot of being a good person first and foremost, and really living the ideas of the philosophy in order for you to actually come off as benevolent when you're when you're doing that. Yeah, and I think it's genuinely so. This, you know, one of the one of the things I'm encouraging is like when you're communicating and persuading the the mindset is how do i help this person and that's why i don't like the language of like winning converts i i'm even skeptical of the language of persuasion yeah um because one of the things i for all the things i disagree with him about admire about people like jordan peterson or sam harris is what they're amazing at is communicating that they genuinely want the best for their audience they're not trying to win them over to a cause. They're not trying to, you know, treat them as little pawns in their game. They're not trying to like squeeze money out of them. They genuinely want the best for their audience. Um, and, and, and when you have that kind of genuine goodwill that I think pays dividends, particularly if you're a person then you, that your audience respects. Absolutely. All right, Daniel, this was amazing. Thank you. Hope you come back at some point. Love to. Thanks, Don. Much appreciated.